When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Celtics fans, and welcome to another edition of CLNS Radio's Celtics Beat. I'm your host, Rich Conti, and we have a great show for you today. In a little while, we'll be joined in tandem by our guests, Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated and Kyle Draper of Comcast Sports New England, as we talk about Thursday night's NBA draft. Before we get to those guys, I'd like to bring in my co-host today, RotoWire's Dr. Andre Snelling, to talk about Thursday evening's draft. Uh, good afternoon, Andre. Were you up late watching Adam Silver and the parade of draft picks the other night? Oh yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was sleepy on Friday because um, I, I was up all night on Thursday. And so, what did you think about the uh, the Celtics pick? Of course, they selected uh, Market Smart at number six. Uh, is that the direction you'd have gone? So I was really intrigued by that pick, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what some of our guests have to say about it because. Obviously, elephant in the room, they just drafted a point guard when they have this guy named Rajon Rondo who's already in that position. So um, I think if I would have been the one making the pick, I might have gone Julius Randle. Um, I, I was tweeting about it um, at the time that, that, that I, <laughs> he ended up on the Lakers, so maybe I shouldn't say this, but I thought that, that, that he was the one that I would have gone with. But um, my uh, Twitter followers uh, called me out on that position, and I had one guy tell me I'm dumb and stop uh, talking <laughs> about basketball. So, <laughs> so at least uh, uh, according to my Twitter feed, the, um, the the Celtics made a great pick with uh, Smart. You can always count on the internet to help your self-image there. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought the Smart pick uh, didn't surprise me. You know, I think once uh, Aaron Gordon came off the board, I think a lot of folks were were hoping to see Dante Exum slide. Uh, you know. I, by all accounts, you know, this guy's going to be a great player, but uh, Exum is, but uh, we really haven't seen a lot of him. So, you know, I'm I'm not all that disappointed. I know they really liked Smart. Uh, I was surprised that Noah Vonley slid as, as far down as, as he did. I thought he might get some consideration. I love Julius Randle as a player, and I think he's a really underrated guy in, in this draft in the sense that, you know, earlier in the season he was talked about, you know, as being a contender for that top spot. And I think, exactly. you know, I think he was in a situation there in Kentucky where he was asked to do some very specific things that were critical to that team being successful. Um, but I don't think he really had the opportunity to show his kind of full skill set there. And I think that hurt him in the sense that, you know, I think folks saw him really dominate on the inside and said, well, okay, he's overpowering you know, uh, college players and you know, he's going to, you know, then struggle with with the length in the in the NBA, and while that might be true, uh, the reality is he, he can yeah you know, has every uh, option to kind of take a different approach when he's going against guys like that in the NBA and take them out to 15, 16 feet. I think he has those types of skills. I would have worried about him alongside Jared Sollinger. I think there's you know a lot in common between those two players, but as you pointed out, they drafted a point guard when they already have one, so you know that maybe that wasn't the deciding factor. But I think they really liked their toughness uh, the, the toughness of smart and i think they really like the element that potentially brings to the team 
Now, they at the, the 17th pick, they reached out and got a small forward out of Kentucky, James Young, a guy, another freshman uh, like Julius Randle, who was kind of part of that uh, freshman crew there in, in Kentucky Blue. What did you think of that pick? I thought that was really good value. Um, I, I thought that he was somebody that, you know, if things went a little differently, if he doesn't have a car accident, maybe goes a little bit higher. Um, and, and so the Celtics were able to take advantage of him maybe sliding a little bit, perhaps the way they did with Selinger a couple years ago. So um, I like what he brings to the table. I think, um, you know, we, we've been talking about him as uh, a small forward. I, you know, I, I kind of wonder if he'll end up spending some time at the two. Um, but either way, the, the Celtics, I think, have, have lacked a swing man with his particular size and skill set um, for a little while. So, um, so, so yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, you know, he's one of the younger guys in the draft, and I think that's really a future play. And, you know, good turnout. He he could still grow. He's pretty long for 6'7", um, but, you know, he could continue to fill out and be 6'8", you know, pushing on 6'9", and they might really have something down the road. So I think he's more kind of a, a future investment. And one of the guys that was on the Celtics radar screen, at least the Celtics fans radar screen with Joel Embiid, you know, previously thought to be in the running for the top overall pick, suffered that, uh, of course, back injury at first in the tournament, but then the, the bigger issue was the surgery on his navicular bone in his, in his foot, and there was some talk that he might slide to the Celtics at, at fifth. And uh, Philadelphia grabbed him at number three, second year in a row that they they draft a big man who you know probably won't be able to play right out of the gate for them. They they took Nerlens Noel last year, and then they came back and make a trade a little bit further down and took Dario Saric, the big man who just signed a three-year deal to play in Turkey, and so he obviously won't be available. What is up with Sam Hinkie taking guys? That 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 can't uh, actually see the court right out of the gate. Yeah, Hinky is in what is currently probably the best GM job in America, and if it goes wrong, could suddenly turn into the worst one. But um, he he has uh, he clearly has the full backing of his his ownership to the point where they said essentially we don't care if the team is terrible for multiple years as long as you're you're, you're kind of building towards that future. So, um, honestly, I really liked the pick. I, I thought it took some, um, can I say cojones on the air? You know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, but before the draft, um, I, I, I went on the Rotowire Fantasy uh, Sports Show um, on Thursday, and, and I was talking about how, you know, if I was Philadelphia, I would take Embiid because they're not going to be good next year no matter who they got at that pick. Um, they 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 may have had an upside scenario of trying to get the 500 and sneaking into the playoffs, but really, what's the point of that? You know, if you're going to be bad, then own it and 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 really build up for it. So um, now they come out of the, these last two drafts, they have the guy who was thought to be the consensus number one pick in last year's draft before he got injured. They have the guy who was really thought to be the number one pick in this year's draft before he got injured. They have last year's Rookie of the Year, who they got later in the first round last year. And then, you know, they have this kind of lottery ticket with, with you know, Saric that if he does pan out and, and, and comes over a little bit more seasoned in a couple years, that's probably about the time they're looking to be good anyway. And, um, you know, if he did, doesn't pan out, well, they've been swinging for the fences on upside. So um, I actually really like that, the um, the Embiid pick especially, and, and I can understand the Sarge pick as the backup. Yeah, I guess Celtics fans can kiss that extra first-round draft pick they could uh, potentially <laughs> get from Philadelphia that was conditional on them making the playoffs uh, this coming season. I, I don't think there's any chance of that. Uh, you know, Speaking of the draft, what was the biggest surprise of the night for you? Yeah, um I think uh that honestly I think that that the 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 biggest surprise to me was the Nick Stauskas pick. He's a, a Michigan boy, um and you know, I, I went to uh U of M for, for grad school, go blue, but I really didn't see him going with the number eight pick to, to Sacramento. That that surprised me what it happened. And then um a couple picks later when, when Philly uh picked Alfred Payton, that surprised me too because they just picked the same player in Michael Carter Williams last year. But of course, they flipped Payton in, in the trade for Saric. So, you know, I was less surprised um, once that all played out. You know, all night I was thinking the Aaron Gordon pick at number four was going to be the, the, the biggest surprise. And then Masai Ujiri uh, completely reframed my expectations about what a, a draft <laughs> surprise is. It's almost like when Tyler Ennis was, was picked a little bit earlier uh, when Phoenix kind of broke their hearts. He was, he was the guy Toronto was looking at all, all along. 
it's almost like Toronto just gave up and they, they took, <laughs> and I'm going to get it wrong, Bruno Chabono of, of Brazil, a small forward out of Brazil, who is described as by Fran Priscilla of, of ESPN as being two years away from being two years away. So that one just, just really kind of blew me out of the water. I mean, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I have to point out the Bruno Chabono. I'm pretty sure his last name uh, only doesn't have an N in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I told you I was going to get it wrong. I, you know, I was so cross-eyed when I saw that pick come across the the wire. Well, since we're on the topic of the draft, let's go ahead and bring in our guests, Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated and Kyle Draper of Comcast Sports New England. Our interview with Kyle and Chris is brought to you by the Boston Sports Connection. For all your Boston sports talk, tune in every Tuesday evening on CLNS Radio with CLNS Content Manager Sean Backey. Well, welcome back to the show, guys. Good to be here. Hey, what's up, guys? Yeah, there's a lot of trade chatter leading up to Thursday night's NBA draft, but when push came to shove, except for the usual flurry of deals involving second-round picks, the only trades of note that impacted the board in the first round were the deals that saw Philly and Orlando swap the 10th and 12th picks and the deal that saw the Bulls move up to the 11th pick by sending Denver the 16th and 19th. Chris, did you expect more movement around the board, and why do you think things were relatively quiet? No, this was the exact kind of movement that I anticipated. I knew Chicago planned on being aggressive. I knew uh, Denver was shopping that pick. I knew Miami uh, wanted to move up to get themselves Shabazz Navy or uh, even a Tyler Ennis uh, at that position, someone to play the backup point guard position. So I expected all this. I mean, the, the flurry of talk about the number one overall pick, a lot of it was just smoke. I mean, mm-hmm. Boston... I think they were interested at one point in number one, but, you know, wishing doesn't make it so. I mean, Jared <laughs> Sullinger and the number six pick you know, is not enough to get Cleveland even remotely interested in uh, in moving up to get number one. So I think that this sort of went according to form uh, with me uh, for the draft. And, of course, the Celtics were frequently mentioned in the trade chatter, but nothing really materialized on their front. Kyle, did you ever get the sense that the Seas were close to a deal? And do you think that Wick, Danny, and the rest of the organization are disappointed that they couldn't make something bigger happen? No, I I don't think they were close on anything, to be honest with you. I mean, it wasn't for lack of trying. I had a chance to talk to Danny Ainge uh, last night after the draft, and I asked him about that number one overall pick and and, and that deal with uh, Cleveland that he you know, they were pushing for, and, and he said there were a lot of intriguing things, but it was, from what I gather and everything I can read between the tea leaves, it was Cleveland not wanting to do that deal. Like Chris said, you know, the number six and, and Jared Sellinger or whatever it would be is not enough for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I don't think there was any real serious discussions, you know, leading up to the draft. Ains did say that, you know, they had some serious talks about some trades, you know, earlier in the off season, but leading up, you know, the last few days uh, up until the draft, I don't think there was anything really serious. Yeah, and look, Kyle's right. Um, you know, I think that the Boston wanted to trade. Uh, they always want to trade. This is what they do, and especially this time of year, uh, over the next couple of years, they're going to be very active in at least engaging in discussions. But, you know, I think Rick Grousebeck made the point. It takes two to tango, and I thought teams picking in the top five felt pretty comfortable about what they were going to get with one of those top five picks, that unless there was an overwhelming offer uh, to grab uh, someone uh, to make a deal, that they were going to keep those picks and make the picks that they wanted. Kyle, uh, by all accounts, the Seas were very high on Marcus Smart. On the other hand, when the Magic surprised folks with that Aaron Gordon pick, I think many fans got their hopes up that Dante Exum might fall to six. Do you have any insight as to who might have been the pick if both Exum and Smart were on the board? That's a good question. You know, I, I will say everything I've heard is that they were extremely high on Marcus Smart. I mean, they brought him in, brought him in for three workouts. Uh, a couple of those workouts were under the table, you know, not, not leaked out to the media. And I was texting with somebody within the organization before the pick was made. This was, uh, right at number five, right when, uh, Exum was about to be picked, I do believe. And I wanted to find out which way they were going to go. And they said, I think we're going to go with Marcus Smart. And so, I think they had Marcus Smart really high up on their board. You know, uh, there was talk of, uh, you know, you look at all the mock drafts of Bonley maybe, uh, going up there or Aaron Gordon. Once Aaron Gordon, I think, went off the board there at number four and Marcus Smart was there at six, I mean, I think that was their pick. I mean, I, I get the sense, and Chris helped me out with this, that they were high on Marcus Smart all along. I mean, and, and, and they were giddy when he was there at number six. 
Yeah, and look, as anyone that's watched CSN any broadcast, I like to disagree with Kyle as much as humanly possible. <laughs> but I, I would say that, um, you know, as long as Gordon was off the board, I think Smart was the next guy that fit into that range on their radar. Uh, Vonley is a very good prospect, but uh, he was sliding pretty heavily uh, in the hours and really the days uh, before the draft. Teams either, you know, didn't believe in his offensive potential or in some cases, especially with a team like the Lakers, felt that it was going to take too long for that offense to develop. And Boston, if it was, if it did come down to a Marcus Smart, Dante Exum pick, I think they were leaning towards Smart. you got to remember that when teams have been evaluating Dante Exum, they're not working with a lot. They're working with YouTube video and the, and the word of scouts that have seen him play in a handful of international tournaments. It's, it's very difficult for teams to really discern uh, what Dante Exum really is. Now, it, I'm of the opinion that Exum is a star. I mean, I've written about this guy a lot in SI over the last, you know, probably six, seven months. Uh, I think he's, you know, I've seen him, uh, I think every piece of tape on him that's available on the Internet, I think he's a stud. But other teams might not be so sure because there's not really a strong amount of evidence. Smart, at least you know, you know, he's a bulldog player, a good defensive player, gets the lane pretty well. If he can develop a jump shot, uh, he can be an effective player. I thought the only argument that might have been had inside that Celtic war room would have been between, between Smart and Aaron Gordon if he was there. And Chris, you were a guest on Celtics Beat with Andre and Ty Ray back in March. And at that time, you suggested that if Celtics came away from this draft with Marcus Smart, that that would mean that uh, you know Ray John Rondo's time in Boston would be getting getting short. Do you still kind of feel that way now that this has come to pass? Yeah, and I don't have any direct knowledge of it at this point of what the Celtics plan to do with with Rondo. I'm just going off the logical next step in all mm-hmm. this, and and I don't believe that Marcus Smart can play two guard. Uh, he's six four which is great size for a point guard, but, you know, average size for a two. And, and frankly, he shot 30% from three in each of the last two years. And, and even though I don't think his jump shot is broken, I think it can get better, I don't think that's going to be the staple of his offensive game. The staple of his offensive game is going to be using that thick frame and getting to the basket, creating contact, and getting to the free throw line. These are all attributes I think you see in a point guard. I mean, over the years, in really the last two years, we've seen the NBA kind of trend – towards having two point guard lineups occasionally. Phoenix, Goran Dragic, and, and Eric Bledsoe are a great example of it. But both those guys are perimeter shooting. They're offensive-oriented. Boston, if they play Smart and Rondo together, all of a sudden you have two guys that can't shoot the ball from beyond the three-point line who are, are more point guard-ish in the way they play. So I just think if Boston wants to retain Smart and have him be part of the core long-term, that doesn't spell good things for Rondo. Chris, let me jump in here, guys, because I tend to disagree, and I know Marcus Smart, you know, it, it needs to be have the ball in his hands, uh, you know, is very strong driving to the hole, that kind of thing. But I see him, Chris, in the mold of a, a Will Bynum or, or a Rodney Stuckey or something like that. Not necessarily, you know, the guy you want running your team, you know, per se, and getting others involved because I, I don't know if that's his strong point. So I, I kind of see him more as a combo guard, and, and I would like to see him and Rondo play together a little bit. Yeah, but Kyle, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of combo guards in the last five years that succeed. You know, Jamal Crawford you know, being one. I just feel the NBA, you have to have a real position, and you have to be, if you're going to be a, an effective player in this league, more often than not, you have to have a real position. You have to put that guy in that real position, especially if you're a young team, and start to build him towards that direction. I think Boston, if you start mixing and matching Marcus Smart in different lineups, if you start playing him at two and then playing him at one, you run the risk you might lose him. I just think that you know, ultimately this guy's long-term position is going to be a point guard kind of in the mold of a Derrick Rose or a Russell Westbrook, not saying he has the talent of either one of those guys at this point, but his physical nature, his physical attributes – I think that's who he's going to turn into long-term. Later in the evening, uh, the Celtics selected James Young, the freshman swingman out of Kentucky with the 17th pick. And most of the reaction so far has been very favorable that the Celtics got a steal. Kyle, what do you think of the pick, and what type of role do you think Young might play this upcoming season? Uh, I like the pick. I, I wouldn't call him, you know, a steal or, you know, anything like that. But I, I think he has the, the tools to be a very good 
player in the NBA. The one thing I like about him, he can pretty much do a little bit of everything offensively, whether it's drive it to the hole, finish around the basket, has the nice mid-range game. And so, you know, I, one thing I do question is, is his motor a little bit, and, and we didn't get to see it, you know, a whole lot at Kentucky when you're playing with the Harrison Twins and, and Randall and that kind of thing. I mean, is he a bulldog? We know uh, Marcus Smart will get after it. You know, will James Young get after it? And so, but, you know, talent-wise, I think he's a great pick for the Celtics. I mean, really what they need is talent, and they need guys that can score the basket. And I think James Young, if you give him the ball, he can score on his own. You don't have necessarily have to, you know, put him in set-up positions for him to score. If you could give him the ball and get out of his way, he can score. With that being said, what position is he? Is he a three? Most people, uh, you know, Danny H said he sees him as a three but can guard some two. And so his his frame lengthwise will be an asset defensively where he can guard a number of positions. And so I'm okay with the pick. I mean, who else was on the board at that time that I would have taken? You know, T.J. Warren was already gone. You know, there was talk that they were high on him. And so I'm okay with James Young. Get him the ball and get out of his way. You just deified <laughs> James Young right there, my friend. Look, I agree with all the things you're saying, Kyle, on, on the physical tools, and that's his. These are his greatest attributes. He is six foot eight, seven foot wingspan, uh, a jump shot that looks like it could develop. But you know that's the key phrase there. Looks like it can develop. He shot thirty five percent from three point range at Kentucky last year. You know, it's all kind of wishful thinking uh, with James Young, and and, and maybe. He would have been a higher pick if he the, the admired car accident he had in New York recently and not held him out of workouts uh, over the last couple of weeks. But you know, I agree with you there. I, I don't think he's a steal necessarily. I think he's a good pick uh, in that spot. Now, for, for my money, and you mentioned you know who else was there, a couple of guys, if you're going to take guys in that 2-3 position, I like Gary Harris in that spot. Harris a little bit undersized for the two-guard position, but he's a defender, and he can rediscover the jump shot he had his freshman year. I think he'd be a really good player. And I've been pretty high on P.J. Harrison uh, in that range, you know, for the last couple of mock drafts that I put out on, on SI.com. I thought that Harrison, even though D-League numbers are really hard to figure out what they actually mean, he's a six foot six two guard with a great body, you know, the kind of physique and, and natural talent that with the right coach can be developed into a pretty good player. So I might have looked towards those guys with that pick. Young's got good potential, but there are just a lot more question marks with him than I think there are answers. Chris, I know a lot of fans in Boston were disappointed at the lack of draft night fireworks in the Celtics. How do you see the rest of the offseason playing out? Is that disappointment a little premature, and do you think that we'll see some significant roster changes later on in the offseason? Well, they're going to try to trade. You know, They've got too many assets to, to not go out there and be aggressive in trying to make a deal. I don't think the Kevin Love stuff is done yet. Uh, they'll try to make an offer. I don't think they can compete with anything that involves Clay Thompson, but they can compete with everything else. So I think Boston would have to hope that any Golden State deal kind of falls through uh, and they can get back into the running. So I think they're, you know, Trader Danny, as is his nickname, uh, is going to, you know, live up to that. I think they're going to be aggressive this offseason in trying to find a centerpiece player. And this is what they want. I mean, every conversation I've had with people in Boston is that we got to find that centerpiece player. We got to find that one star that we can build around. Then we fill in the blanks with guys like James Young and others that, that, that could be good players playing off that guy. They're still missing that one star who's the franchise player, and that's what they'll be pursuing this offseason. How about you, Kyle? What do you see happening the rest of the offseason? No, same, same thing. I mean, this was just really the first step, and, and, and if it was up to Danny Ainge, he would have already pulled the trigger, you know, on, on that franchise guy. You know, uh, I don't think they were truly enamored with this draft class in terms of finding, you know, that building block, that key centerpiece, and so he definitely would have traded the picks. With that being said, Kevin Love... I just don't see it happening, Chris. And you mentioned Golden State. I mean, if Golden State breaks down and eventually, you know, does that Clay Thompson offer with David Lee and maybe a first, I mean, I don't see how the Celtics can compete with that. I also yeah. like the Chicago package, too. You know, if Chicago strikes out on Melo, do they go for uh, Kevin Love? And so with that being said, I, I, I wouldn't consider the Celtics the front runner to lane Kevin Love. And then you got to look at, well, who else can they get as that centerpiece? Carmelo, I don't think it's going to happen. No, no shot at LeBron. So who are you talking about after that? And so 
this may be a process that, you know, will take a few years to, to you know, really, really take shape for the Celtics. And so I'm sure, like Chris said, they're trying their hardest to get something done. But like Wick said last night, it takes two to tango, and, and I just don't see the Celtics making that major move this offseason. Yeah, Kyle, you know, you mentioned, you know, if love isn't the guy, who else is out there? And, you know, I've been a pretty firm believer that impact players in the NBA, or at least established players, come available all the time. And I think, you know, what, what Angel's strategy is, you know, you guys have mentioned to kind of collect assets to put them in the position to strike a deal when the opportunity is out there. Are there any other guys that, that you guys could see coming on the market? I know last year LaMarcus Aldridge was a bit disgruntled and there was talk about him kind of putting himself into a Kevin Love situation. Uh, but it seems like with the success they had last year, at least in the regular season, he's you know looking at maybe staying in, in Portland long term. Is there anybody out there on the radar screen besides you know the, the big names like Melo and LeBron that we're hearing that might be a target if Ainge decides that, hey, you know, it looks like Kevin Love isn't going to happen for us and, and set to sites elsewhere. Chris, I'm going to let you take that one, man, because I'm, well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that the, the big guys that are out there are, are on Boston's radar, and nor are they, is Boston on their radar. I mean, we all know who we're talking about, the Carmelo group, along with the big three uh, down in Miami. That's that's non-consideration. One guy I, I might keep an eye on is Chandler Parsons down in Houston, uh, restricted free agent. Uh, you know, Ken, uh, you know, Houston's hoping to re-sign him after they go through the whole Carmelo-LeBron process. But don't discount the fact that I think Danny and the Celtics might want to stick it to Daryl Morey down there <laughs> and get a guy, uh, you know, and, and give and create some problems with their salary cap by trying to scoop up a guy like Chandler Parsons in some kind of, kind of creative move uh, over the offseason. Parsons is a good player. He's not the centerpiece player that we've been talking about, but, you know, he is the kind of guy that if you're looking for, you know, a, a small forward that is on that second tier of really good players, uh, he could be uh, a very good player in that mix. So, yeah, and, I, and I agree with you. You, you mentioned, you know, the, the big names. I, I don't think the Celtics are really in the run for those kind of guys, so they need to look at that next tier of guys. And, and you mentioned Chandler Parsons, and I think he'd be a great fit. Uh, there's been some talk of Gordon Hayward. Chris, uh, help me out with that. Is, is that somebody they would look at? Or, or now with this draft, you don't think they would uh, try and take a look yeah. at him? No, I think they'd look at him, and obviously we all know the Brad Stevens connection with, with Gordon Haywood. My, my thing with Gordon is that I feel like with the draft that Utah had where they got Dante Exum and they have Trey Burke in place and Gordon is, is tailor-made for kind of that small forward spot, uh, as a restricted free agent, I'm not sure what kind of offer Utah won't match uh, that particular case. I mean, you know, it's a small market in Utah, but the, the Miller family that's on that team for, for generations uh, they've never been shy about paying for the players they really like. I think they really like Gordon Hayward, and, and really any boss offer Boston makes, unless it's you know a total max offer, which I'm not really sure that's going to be on the table, I don't think that Utah wouldn't match it. So then let's say that nothing significant happens for the rest of the offseason. Chris, how many wins do you think this roster is capable of as they're currently constituted? I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 33 to 37 or 8 wins, uh, give or take a few uh, here or there, depending on injuries. Uh, a healthy Rondo uh, coming back at, at the Rondo we've seen before the injury will obviously uh, mean more wins. Um, I think that you know, the, the two guys they've got, uh, especially Smart, is going to be able to contribute uh, at some level uh, right away. Uh, you know, they've got their own for agents. I don't know what Avery Bradley does this offseason after uh, all the moves that were made that brought some some depth into the backcourt, uh, and we all have to assume that Sullinger and Kelly Olenek will take steps next year, but you know, they might, best-case scenario, kind of compete for that 500 record, uh, which is, I guess, possible in the will-be-gone Eastern Conference. Uh, but right now, I think they're they're kind of in that 30-30-37 range. Yeah, guys, and I got them at 30-35. to 35. It's just they still need interior help. They, you know, the defense, you know, around the basket is still going to be awful. And so I, I just think they still have so many holes. If they don't make any other moves this off season, it'll be another year. I won't say 25 wins, but 30 to 35. I don't think they'll make the playoffs even as bad as the East is. And so it, to me, it'll be another disappointing season for the Celtics. I still think they need to add at least one more piece, a big piece, especially in, in free agency. Try to get somebody. You know, I, I don't know if you can uh, call up uh, Milwaukee for Larry Sanders. I don't know about that. 
which I, I still think you need a, a defensive presence down low because right now Brandon Bass isn't playing in the interior defense. Ke- Kelly Olenek and Jared Sellinger, that's what you have interior defensive-wise, and I don't think that's good enough. Now, despite the struggles last season, the organization and the staff kind of got a bit of a free pass because fans, you know, expected a transition and lowered their expectations accordingly. Kyle, do you see that changing if the team continues to flounder through next season? Do Angel companies start to feel some pressure to make something happen and maybe take a chance that they wouldn't otherwise? Well, I think, uh, and Chris might echo this, that if they're struggling once again, I mean, you've you got to look at Rajon Rondo. I mean, what do you do with him? I mean, he's going to be a free agent next season. And if the team is, you know, if they don't bring in another free agent this offseason, I mean, what do you do with Rajon Rondo? I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there's discussions about moving him near the trade deadline, especially if things are going bad. And so it'll be this offseason and especially next offseason, to me, is really critical for the Celtics. I mean, if, if you don't, you know, do something this offseason, you have to do something at the trade deadline or next offseason. And, and, and I think that's the kind of time that, you know, we're giving them. I mean, if it doesn't happen by this time next year, then you start to wonder, does Danny Ainge start feeling that heat? Yeah, they'll go big game hunting, you know, this offseason. If it means trading Rondo, they'll do the same thing. One thing they won't do is take on a crappy contract for a guy that might help them get into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll, you know, they're not going to, you know, just seek to get into the postseason like an Atlanta did this year and lose in the first round. They're building this team from the ground up, and I think ownership has made it clear publicly and, and from people I've talked to privately that, you know, as sad as it is for Celtics fans to hear, they're kind of okay with, with kind of sucking, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, next year if it means they've got the long-term plan. Uh, still in place to get better through young talent. Now, Chris, the Celtics signed Coach Brad Stevens to a six-year deal when they brought him aboard. If the team continues to struggle, do you think that he starts looking at other opportunities? What happens if the Seas fail to win 30 games again next year and then Coach K retires and the Duke job opens up? Does Stevens start looking in that direction? No, no way. No, he he's happy being an NBA head coach. I thought he was very successful despite the Celtics' record as an NBA head coach. He's got a six-year contract. He knew exactly what he signed up for when he took this deal. He knew this team was going nowhere fast over the first couple of years, maybe even the first three years of this contract. He's in this thing for the long haul. I would be shocked beyond words if Brad Stevens cut bait and ran. Well, you, I mean, Chris mentioned it. He got six years, $22 million, and he knew it would be a process. But I will say this about Brad, and Chris, maybe you could touch on it too. He takes these losses hard. I mean, He's gonna, he'll be like the president of the United States, be here four years and age about 30, you know, if these losses continue. And so that's the only thing I'm concerned about is, you know, the kind of toll these losses will take on him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I I think that's, that's, that's true. He does take this stuff hard, but I just, you know, if the question is, do I see him leaving and going somewhere else to the college ranks again, if say a coach K retires or another big name coach walks away, I don't. I think, you know, three, four years at the minimum are what Brad Stevens is going to put into this. Let's switch gears and go back to the draft a little bit. Um, looking back at the draft last night, uh, both of you, um, what were your biggest surprise? Uh, what was the best pick and what were the worst picks that you saw last night? I thought, uh, and I apologize, but I'm going to run after this question. I've got, um, you know, I thought the best pick um, at the top of the draft, I thought that you know, Wiggins was a, a very smart pick. At number one, I thought T.J. Warren was a very smart pick. At number fourteen, um, I thought there were—I thought this draft had a lot of smart picks. I, I wondered about Nick Stauskas at number eight, uh, especially with Ben McLemore already in the fold in Sacramento. But uh, I, I thought this—this this was a draft where you had far more winners than losers. I didn't see too many teams outside of maybe Toronto who drafted a guy I've never even heard of um, and uh, was was fit, uh, fit into that that loser kind of mold. Uh, I thought this was a strong draft for virtually everybody. A lot of teams got what they needed and, and are able to move on. And, and I like uh, what Orlando did there at uh, number four. I, I'm a big Aaron Gordon guy. People talk about his offensive game, can't make free throws, but he's a rebounder, he's a defender, and I like the way he plays big around the basket. And so I, I think that's something, you know, the Orlando Magic had been lacking, you know, somebody that plays big around the basket. And so that'll that's a nice pickup. I was scratching my head, however, at the Phoenix Suns and, and, you know, drafting Kyler Ennis when you already have Juan Dragic and you also have a restricted free agent and Eric Bledsoe. To me, something has to happen there with three of those guys. You, I can't see them going into the season with all three. 
Well, listeners can find Chris Mannix at SportsIllustrated.com and on Twitter at Chris Mannix, SI. You can catch Kyle on Comcast Sports New England and on Twitter at Kyle Draper TV. Well, thanks for joining us today, guys. Kyle, next season, don't ever disagree with me this much again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I can do this when I'm on the radio. When I'm on TV, I just have to say yes, sir, you know. <laughs> thanks for having us, guys. Well, Andre, what do you think of the Celtics as the roster stands right now? What do you think they're capable of? And then do you expect actually significant changes as the offseason starts to heat up and we head into free agency? So I think I tend to agree with Kyle a little more than Chris. Um, I see him right around that 30 wins threshold, give or take. Um, I, I don't think that they have the roster to really make a push at 500, even in kind of a best-case scenario. So um, I see them in those low 30s perhaps with wins. Now, whether that translates to a move this offseason or not, um, I, I think both, uh, both, both Kyle and Chris made good points about that. You know, you, you have to have a partner in order to make something happen. And so um, I don't think if the Celtics miss out on the Kevin Love or yeah, – I don't see Carmelo coming here. So if they miss out on Kevin Love, there aren't a lot of other really big-name guys that I could see them – you know, really wanting to go after that, that'll be available this off season, and and you know, I don't think that that they're going to you know sacrifice a lot on on smaller moves if they're instead going to gear up for next year. So um, I either think we're going to get a home run or else you know maybe a single as far as a, a action from here on out. Yeah, I think Ainge is probably going to look for pieces, even if they're on the smaller side, that might fill a specific niche. You know, uh, Omera Sheik obviously is off the market with the trade to the Pelicans, but Kyle mentioned Larry Sanders. He's obviously had you know some challenges in signing that big contract recently, but you know that's a player with a very unique skill that I could see Ainge you know kind of taking a, a small bet on. But honestly, I think they're still in asset collection mode and and really looking. You know, I think the draft reflected that, and I think they're starting to look at, okay, what is the right opportunities to cash some of these in? You know, I don't think Ains is going to get caught trying to stretch a, a single and a triple using your uh, uh, baseball <laughs> analogy and, and risk getting thrown out. You know, I think if, if he does make that big splash, he's going to have a lot of confidence that, that it's the right guy. Uh, let me throw some names out at you that, that, you know, have been talked about out there, not necessarily in connection with the Celtics, and get your take on, on how you know, good of a fit they might be. Uh, Greg Monroe, the center of power forward for the Detroit Pistons as a restricted free agent. Is that a guy that, that, that maybe fits here in Boston? I don't see it. I think he's more of what the team already has. You know, he's, he's maybe a bit more polished, a bit more um, of a productive history than a, a Sullinger goes, but he has the same strengths and weaknesses. Um, as far as big men, what the Celtics need is an interior presence on defense, and that's not what uh, Monroe is. Yeah, I, I actually like his passing skills quite a bit for a big man, but I agree, you know, it tends to be more duplicative with what they've already got in, in Sullinger, and he's not that, that rim protector that they need on, on the interior. He's, you know, not only not, you know, particularly explosive athlete, uh, you know, he struggles on rotations, not really great help defender, so, you know, I know his name has been thrown out there as, as a potential target for the Celtics, but I have a hard time seeing that happen. Uh, you know, Kyle mentioned Gordon Hayward of the Utah jazz is he somebody that that age might set his sights on yeah I, I think if the celtics could get gordon haywood I, I think they would be all over it i think he he would be a great fit um he's a, a good young player he does have the stevens connection but um again as, as was pointed out in the interview i don't know that they really have a shot at it i think that in order to really get it have a good chance at not having his restricted free agency contract matched they would have to go too high and, and, and pay him like he was a max player. And, and he's not that. Right. He, he's good for the, the value for what he is, but if you pay for the value of what he is, then I think Utah matches. Now Chandler Parsons, of course, is another guy that, that, that Chris mentioned in, in the earlier conversation. Um, do you see him fitting in Boston? Obviously a you know, kind of dynamic young player, but I don't think you know, many people think of him as you know, your, your centerpiece or maybe even your, your third piece on a, on a very good championship-level team. Do you think that's somebody that, that Ainge might, you know, uh, as, as Chris pointed out, kind of stick it to uh, the Dork Elvis, Daryl Morey, by, uh, <laughs> by throwing a, a big uh, uh, contract offer out at the restricted free agent? 
Okay, I'm, first I'm going to say I love the Dork Elvis reference just as much as I love the duplicative word that you threw out a minute there ago. There you go. <laughs> but um, as far as the answer to your question, um, I really like Chandler Parsons as a player. Um, I really like him a lot, actually. But um, he's not a centerpiece player. So, again, a lot like I just said um, about Hayward, if if the Celtics could get him at you know reasonable value, then, yeah, absolutely. You, you take him, I think he's, at least third best player on a championship squad caliber good. I mean, I think he's really good. But if you have to, if in order to stick it to Dork Elvis, you have to give him, you know, anywhere near a max contract, then um, that would just be cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah, it was interesting. I think Daryl Morey made the move to not pick up his his option, make him a, um, I believe he actually is a uh, unrestricted free agent, but the goal was to you know create the cap flexibility for them to make a play for LeBron and or Carmelo, and then possibly you know bring um, bring Chandler Parsons back uh, based on his uh, bird rights. Uh, you know, he, he's I said an interesting guy. I think he's the type of guy that thrives when the attention is elsewhere and can you know really be a you know. Type of guy that can really hurt an opponent when they're they're keying in on somebody else. If he kind of similar to Jeff Green becomes the focal point of a team's defense, I, you know, I I think he would, would would struggle a little bit more in that situation. Yeah. Plus, um, just just jumping in with um, the difference between him and Green is that while neither one of them might scale up to a superstar player, I think that Parsons scales down much better. Mm-hmm. You know, making him that third option, he's able to give you 15 to 20 points at, like, high efficiency, you know, without having to control the ball and still be able to do the little things. And I think the, the biggest problem people tend to have with Green is that inconsistency and not really doing anything except for scoring. And I don't think that would be a problem with Parsons. Now, kind of looking in the other direction, of course, you know, there's been continued rumors swirling around Rajon Rondo, and a lot of the talk today has been, you know, what the drafting of Smart means for Rondo's future in Boston. And of course, we, you know, we addressed that with with Chris and Kyle earlier. You know, uh, what do you think? I, I think in many quarters, folks, you know, assume that unless they're able to land almost specifically Kevin Love, that Rajon Rondo kind of needs to be dealt. You know, what, what's your feeling? You know, do you, do do you see this coming to ahead this off season, or do you see it kind of dragging uh, into the season or is it really just a lot of a lot of noise and and ultimately he wants to be in Boston and and the franchise wants him to stay around so let, let me start where if anybody saw my Twitter feed um, during the draft uh, they would know that as soon as smart was, was taken I immediately went in on on how he and Rondo just cannot be the the backcourt of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it was alluded to with, with Chris and Kyle, but um, I, I agree. He's, he he may be a combo guard, but he's not a full time shooting guard, and and he can't shoot well enough. I don't think for he he and Rondo to to correspond. You know, to to to, to be the 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 main backcourt. So with that said, um, I think that that was another brick in the house if you will the the will rondo be traded house i think you know that that case got a lot stronger um with the draft but um just like with everything else you need a partner and if if rondo is sent out then a he has to be going to a team that could really use his services and b it has to be a team that has a corresponding talent or picks or something of value that, that would match up with the Celtics need. And right now I don't know of any great fits that I just feel like, oh yeah, that's probably that's likely to happen this year. So I think after the draft, the likelihood that Rondo gets moved increased, but it could still take into next year before that perfect partner is found. Yeah, I agree. I think that the most likely scenario is this continues to play out until next off season because honestly, there's no rush here. Um, you know, I know you think a lot of few folks take the stance of well, you have to trade him before he walks away and, and you get nothing. But you know, really, is that a, a bad situation or is that a worse situation than trading him for pennies on the dollar? Is it a worse situation than really you know taking what's probably a 35 win team next year and making it a, a 20 win team? 
right? You know, you have to think about the costs mm-hmm. associated with that. And, you know, as you said, there aren't a lot of real great fits. You know, I could see if, if Houston loses out on, you know, LeBron and or Carmelo, you know, them maybe turning their sights. But really, especially with Omer Sheik gone now, there, there's really no way to match up unless they're really willing to talk Chandler Parsons and still come up with, with some more assets. And so I, I agree with you that, you know, a Marcus Smart, Rajon Rondo backcourt probably isn't going to win you a championship, probably isn't going to be conducive to a long playoff run, but I think they can coexist in the short term, and I think they can coexist on a, you know, a playoff team, and and more importantly, I think they can coexist in a way that each of their values can be, you know, built up. You know, I think Rondo's value needs some rehabilitation, and, you know, I'll touch on that a bit more in a second, Uh, and, you know, Smart obviously has to, you know, kind of build his value starting from from scratch. And I think, again, that's the mode that the Celtics are in right now. They're not, I don't think, trying to find pieces that fit so much as they are just trying to, you know, generate and, and create and develop pieces that are valuable so that they can later kind of shape things in, into a way that, that you have a roster that, that kind of fits in, in, in the way that you describe. And, you know, the, the Rondo story is really interesting to me. I, you know, I, I thought a lot about it over the past couple of weeks, and there's been a lot of chatter on social media. And it's interesting, if you go back, uh, what's pr- about 24 months uh, ago at this point, uh, which was probably the pinnacle of Rondo's value, Right, he was coming off of that Eastern Conference Finals against the mm-hmm. the Heat, that legendary series, where for long stretches of that series, he was the best player on the court, not LeBron James. You know, there was that game two where he scored forty four points. He was the best mm-hmm. player in that game. And so right. you're talking about a player who is capable of being on the court with, you know, the the top players in the game and, and going toe to toe with them and, and you know, and, and that's a guy you think you want to build around, right? And so you go from that point and what has happened between then and now? Right, you had the Celtics invested a lot in an off season to try to squeeze one more run out of the big three. They brought in Courtney Lee, they brought in Jason Terry, um, and Jeff Jeff Green, of course, was was coming back from the the, the heart surgery, uh, and and they struggled. And you know the pieces mm-hmm. struggled to fit. Rondo, you know, that's where I think some of the first criticism really started to to, to creep in. You had some folks kind of questioning, you know, the way he played and was he you know kind of being selfish and going for the assist streak record. And so that that planted a seed in people's mind. And then the injury hit. You know, right at a time where the team looked like they might kind of come together, Avery Bradley came back, you know, uh, Courtney Lee was starting to settle a little bit into a role, and all of a sudden Ronda's out for the rest of the year. And I think there was that initial rush, the first, like that first game when he went out, there was that big overtime win against Miami. There were a couple of other wins early on. I think, you know, that kind of planted the seed of, of wow, does the team play better without Rondo? But there were no real legs to that, right? Ultimately, the team underachieved that season, you know, got knocked out in the, the first round of the playoffs, and, and then, you know, the Celtics blew it up. And then we go to this season. Rondo misses a big part of the season. The, you know, the team is, is mediocre at best. Uh, he comes back. He has some, you know, shows some flashes of his former form. Actually shows some flashes of an improved outside shot. But on the whole, you know, he didn't play well. And that's probably not, you know, surprising for a guy coming back from that type of injury and coming back onto a team that, you know, was, was frankly mediocre with guys that, that, that really didn't know their roles yet and, and hadn't developed and established themselves as, you know, what their niche was in the NBA. And I think, you know, a lot of the, the brunt of that kind of fell on Rondo. And so then here we are where folks are, you know, talking about shipping him out. And, and I just look at, you know, kind of what they call the chain of evidence, and it seems mm-hmm. very, very flimsy to me. And, I, I, you know, I wonder if folks are, you know, assuming that there's a foregone conclusion that this guy isn't who we thought he was, or he's not the kind of guy to build around, and whether that might not be a mistake. Yeah, no, there were a lot of good points in what you said there. And, you know, but I guess I think I could take almost the the opposite view. You know, I don't like to call myself a devil's advocate, but, um, you know, uh, putting my basketball nerd hat back on, um, there was a lot of indication well before that 2012 offseason or the subsequent 2013 season that Rondo was not having the impact that, you know, his counting number stats and the perception um, that, that, that he was enjoying, that, that even though he was putting up those great 
assist numbers and and people were more and more thinking that the torch was passing from the Garnets and Pierces and Allens of the world into Rondo's hand, that if you really looked at, at the impact when, when he was around and what was driving the team, that it wasn't him. And so, um, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, Heat series being kind of a high watermark for his perception and value around the league. And I could agree with that because people saw that 40-something point game and said, hey, you know, maybe this is what he could be. But in 2013, I don't know if it was just a slow start. You know, it it really might have been just that a team built purely around Rondo, you know, with Ray Allen gone and, and Garnett and Pierce starting to slow down. It just maybe it just wasn't going to be that good. It maybe just inherently the way that he plays, perhaps is just not conducive to him being a huge impact player. And and it comes back to what um, we were just uh, talking about with Chandler Parsons versus Jeff Green. You know, I was saying that Parsons' game scales. You know, you might not scale him up to a superstar, but you could scale him into that third slot and have him give really good value. You know, another person that that. I'm really high on uh, Manu Ginobili is like that. He could, you know, he he could be a superstar impact in the role that he is in um, without it having to disturb everybody else. Whereas with Rondo, I wonder if maybe he has the talent to be a second slash third best player on a championship team, but the way he has to play the game where everything has to go through him, where he needs to be the one controlling the ball because he doesn't have that outside shot doesn't scale well to being a third option. And, you know, I I mean, honestly, there are times when I wonder if his increasing role in the offense perhaps limited some of what could have been accomplished during that big three era because Rondo needed to be more of a focal point, whereas there were others that may have been able to do it a little bit more efficient, a, a little more efficiently and a little more productively for the team. So I don't know if it's necessarily a, a thin chain of evidence that um, Rondo maybe should, should be on the way out. Um, I, I think at this point it's kind of a matter of interpretation and that, uh, you know, with the drafting of Smart, the Celtics maybe have a little bit more leeway to explore both interpretations and um, see what they could get from him and what they could have if he stays um, before making that final decision. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of that. I think there are elements of the the style of game that he needs to play that does have, you know, obviously big impact, both positive and negative on on people around him. I think what I saw a lot of last year was Rondo making the right play, but guys not necessarily being in in the right position to benefit from those plays. And, And I think that was part of the reason why maybe the team, you know, looked better, you know, when, when he wasn't there, they certainly had, had some better results, but I wonder if that's just the case of guys just playing more free form, you know, being able to do things a little bit more instinctively because they weren't necessarily having to do the right things, right? And, and, you know, we know Mm -hmm. kind of when you're a 30 win team, you know, you can look like a 35 or 40 win team if guys are just basically playing undisciplined and playing to their their natural talents, but that doesn't, you know, that's not a linear scale, right? You know, it's right. Like that, that curve tips back down, and if guys continue to play that way, you know, you're, you're, you're never going to, you know, advance, you know, beyond that particular point, whereas the way a guy like Rondo plays, if everybody knows their role, and everybody's executing, and everybody is capable of executing on the things that they are supposed to be doing, Man, the machine can 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 hum, but um, you know, which which makes it an interesting question of you know is is the, you know is Rondo the right guy for this franchise given where they are and the realities of hey, it may be very difficult to you know not necessarily just put you know Hall of Famers around him as he had before, but put a team around him of those parts that fit and and that are able to execute on kind of playing the right way there, and and might somebody else who you know kind of thrives in maybe a less structured system you know, be better for them. And, you know, looking back on that season that just ended, this is the first time that you and I have done the show since the finals ended. What do you think was the key for the Spurs in beating Miami, and did it surprise you? So um, it didn't surprise me that the Spurs won. Um, I went on record, I guess, that I I had the Spurs beating the Heat, you know, before, before the finals began. I think it maybe surprised me how easily they won. I, you know, I... I thought that they would be a bit too big and, you know, a bit too motivated after last year. 
and that with their level of execution that the Heat could have some trouble. Um, I, so I thought, I mean, I, I would have said, you know, okay, Spurs in six. That, that would have been uh, something that made sense to me. But after that one loss, <laughs> it seemed like the, the Spurs just flipped the switch, and all of a sudden they were winning by 20, 25 points every night. And so, so that I didn't expect. And I think maybe in hindsight, um, some of it was, you know, frankly, Popovich won the coaching battle. Like he, he identified the weaknesses in the Heat approach, and then he just exploited them unmercifully, and, and there didn't seem to be anything that he could do about it. And then also maybe um, Wade may have just kind of given out. I mean, he, he had done, you know, he, over the course of the season, they had tried to rest him and keep him fresh for the playoffs, and it seemed like that was successful um, through their run in the Eastern Conference. But, I mean, he just had some terrible games in, in the finals. And so it's either uh, either something was done coaching-wise that really took him out of his comfort zone um, to the nth degree, or else just physically he wasn't able to play like he wanted to play. Uh, you liked when I dropped the word duplicative earlier. I've got another word for you. Evisceration. Complete and utter <laughs> evisceration. It was beautiful to see basketball being played the way that I believe it, it, it should be played. Guys making quick decisions, moving the ball, making the right decisions, playing unselfishly, as Pop says, turning down a good shot for a great shot, and, and just love to see that. And, you know, honestly, I think it should give Celtics fans hope. You know, we hear from guys like Chris and Kyle how Boston isn't on the radar screens of the LeBron James and the Carmelo Anthony's. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, fine. You know, I, I'd, I'd rather watch, uh, you know, them build a team that learns to play the right way and, and win something as a team effort and a franchise effort rather than having some mercenary come into town and, and bring, quote, a championship to Boston. Uh, you know, that, that I don't think I would find much, you know, enjoyment in. And so I thought it was a beautiful thing to watch and, and was really glad, you know, to see Duncan kind of get that, that additional ring. And, and we'll, we'll touch on that in a second because it's that time again. It's time for Around the NBA in Five. Are you ready to do this? Here we go. Let's do it. All right. LeBron and Melo, are they going to team up in Miami or somewhere else like Los Angeles? Or are they going to end up in, in different spots? They're going to different spots. There's, I don't see the upside. Um, Melo and, and LeBron, they, they play the same position even more so than, than LeBron and Wade did. So, yeah, I, I think they're going different places. And I may be the last person to believe it, but I think that LeBron's going back to Cleveland. I would actually love to see them team up and fail. <laughs> you know, not to be that guy, although I, I guess I have a propensity for being that guy. Uh, you know, just to really, you know, I think you know, this is potentially a watershed moment in the evolution of the NBA, what the Spurs just did. And, you know, getting folks to recognize it's, it's a team sport and it's not about individual stars. Yes, you need talent to win. Nobody is doubting that. But when the talent becomes the focus of everything rather than the team and the execution, as it is for the Spurs, you know, I think the, the, the game loses. And so I think it was beautiful to see the Spurs win that, that series and win that championship. And I think, you know, a, a situation where LeBron and Melo maybe teamed up even with Kobe and to have that not be successful, <laughs> I think might be the end of the, the star era in the NBA. Well, all right. Well, speaking of the Spurs, um, the Spurs won their fifth title in the Duncan era. Where does that put him on the list of all-time greats for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think he's squarely in the top ten right now. It's it's interesting. I think folks look at, I think folks overweight, uh, you know, the concept of well, what's this guy's underlying skill, or you know, what is this guy's you know athletic ability when when they they make these top ten lists. You look at Duncan's resume, and it's hard to argue with that resume. Honestly, purely on resume, he's a top five guy. I think at this point, you know, I. Think I think, you know, clearly Kareem's got a, a stronger overall resume. Jordan's got a stronger overall resume. Russell's got a stronger overall resume. And um, probably Magic um, has probably an equivalent resume. There's nobody else in that conversation. Even you know, Larry Bird, who obviously is my, my favorite player of all time, purely on resume. I would probably all, you know, taking context into consideration, maybe put Duncan somewhere on, you know, the, the, the seventh, eighth, maybe ninth spot ahead of guys like LeBron right now ahead of Kobe, uh, and maybe kind of right in that same vicinity as guys like the Big O and, you know, a few other guys, uh, kind of, and, and Hakeem Olajuwon in that area. But, man, that's a tough resume to argue against. 
Yeah, if you're going resume as your decision maker, Duncan is right there with, you know, he can even look the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's in the eye and say, okay, yeah, you may have a little bit more accomplishments, but you were playing at a time when the NBA and ABA were splitting the talent. You know, I'm doing this now. I'm doing this when all of the best talent in the world is here. So um, if you go off resume, Duncan is right there with the best. Um, I've actually participated in a, a couple of projects on, on some basketball websites where we spend a few months and, and really go through and, and rank who we think are the, the best players in history. We've got another one kicking off actually next week. But um, the last time we did it, which was before this championship run, Duncan was already up to number six, um, just based on his impact, based on the way he plays the game, and, and you know comparing that to, to all the best of the others. So, um, yeah, D- Duncan... If this title would have never existed, would have already been up there. And with that title, yeah, he, he had a heck of a career. Now, Miami is now 2 of 4 in the finals during the Big 3 era, and LeBron is 2 of 5 overall. Why does it always seem that this guy doesn't have enough talent around him? You know, it, 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 we continually hear about you know, his teammates, his teammates. At some point, do we be look at him as, as at least part of the, the common denominator? You know, it's at least worth looking at. You know, we, we've talked a lot about Rondo and his style of play. One thing LeBron and Rondo have in common is they're both kind of ball-dominant people. And so LeBron's game, he's, he's very unselfish and willing to pass, but he's the type that if he has the ball and he sets you up, then you need to be a jump shooter in order to fully take advantage of it. And so with players like Wade and, and Bosch, that were used to being the man on their team, they had to subsume themselves, make them into secondary players uh, in order to maximize their time with LeBron. Now, you know, you can't blame Dwayne Wade's health on LeBron. And so if Wade were healthy, this might be a different question. But, yeah, it, it is worth at least looking at his style. Two biggest myths surrounding LeBron James, one that he makes players around him better and the other that he hasn't had talent around him. He makes certain types of players around him better, guys like Mo Williams that have a very specific skill. You can put him in a position, and they can execute on that, do as they're told. Other players, he seems to suppress some of their skill, and I think it goes to that ball dominance that you talk about. The other thing with the talent around him, let's really take a look at the talent around him. You know, He had in Cleveland Zadrunas Zagulskis, who was a better big man, any big man that Michael Jordan ever played with. He played with Carlos Boozer. He played with Shaq, granted, on the downside of his career. Both of those guys were better big men than, than anyone that, that Jordan ever played with. Jordan made guys around him like Hall of Famers. We hear about Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was on his way out of the league when he joined up with the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. I just don't think this guy makes players around him better. I think he's an amazing talent. I think he's a force of nature. I think a lot. You know, there's been a lot of narrative put around him that I think doesn't have a lot of justification. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Carlos Andres Mesa, Astra Vex, and Steph Legretto. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio on Facebook to keep up with the show. I'd like to thank our guests, Chris Mannix and Kyle Draper, for our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, executive producer, Larry A. Trussell, my co-host, Andre Snellings, I'm Rich Conti. See you next Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.